folks. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Food for Thought. Joining us today is Sujala Balaji, social entrepreneur, food scientist, professor, and plant-based protein expert. Sujala was born and raised in India, immigrated to Canada, and has since immersed herself in the world of food. She is a trained food scientist, has a master's degree in biosystems engineering, specializing in egg and food sciences, and has since taken this technical knowledge base with her into the realm of entrepreneurship with her company, Kosha Foods. There's no better person to dive into the world of alternative proteins with. Sujala, where does Food for Thought find you? Hi, Mike. Uh, Food for Thought can find me in uh, Toronto, Canada. Uh, we are a company based out of Toronto, and um, this is where we're currently located. Fantastic. So I want to dive into your professional experience, but it's incredibly vast, and I'm not exactly sure where to start. So maybe paint a picture for viewers of where you started in food and where you're at now. Okay. Um, let me give you a little bit of my uh, origin story, I guess, uh, that will that will help uh, you understand how I came into work in the uh, in the food and act space. I grew up in India uh, for most of my childhood, and I moved to Canada to go to grad school, and which was in uh, the Faculty of Ag and Food Sciences at University of Manitoba. So growing up in India also gave me an understanding and appreciation for uh, growing up closely watching uh, how food was grown. Whereas when I moved to Canada, it was very isolated. I was not able to see any farms close by as, uh, as far as I can see, uh, considering that uh, prairies was the heart of uh, Canada's agricultural landscape. It was still uh, very significantly different from how uh, food was primarily grown in India versus Canada. Anyways, so that, uh, that got me more curious into uh, exploring more of the uh, agriculture and food in Canada. And uh, I finished my master's in biosystems engineering and started working for a startup, which was uh, producing flax oil at a industrial scale. Back then, it was a startup, and uh, we were the first company to uh, to have a patented technology or patent-pending technology at that time to produce flax oil. So the functional foods and the, the concept of producing uh, food that benefits health uh, was somewhat incorporated uh, during the early stages of my career. And um, personal... Personal changes have uh, had me move to Ontario, and uh, that led me to start working for a large dairy company where I was uh, doing R&D, and my startup experience included R&D and product commercialization, and uh, that flew uh, well into the dairy space as well, where I was uh, working in the, um, particularly in the processed cheese side of the business. Um, creating products and uh, improving uh, recipes to uh, to produce products more efficiently and uh, some cost saving initiatives and these were some of the some of the projects that I was uh, I was heading, um, including some new product uh, development projects as well. 
And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, it, it felt like the products that I personally was creating and that company were not necessarily uh, promoting health for consumers in any way. And um, the impact of uh, meat and dairy on the environment was getting a lot more attention. And uh, it made me question uh, whether, as a food scientist, how much of a responsibility do I have in uh, producing a meaningful impact with the education and the experience that I have in the industry and how best to use it. So that... Um, that led me to pursue the entrepreneurial journey. But growing up, uh, even, I don't know, ten, six, seven years ago, if you had asked me, I would have said entrepreneurship is something that I've never even thought of. But I guess it's really just observing what's happening around you in the world. Um, it felt like I had a responsibility to step up and uh, make make uh, impact with my career. So currently, I uh, run a startup called Kosha Foods, um, K-O-S-H-A, which is a word derived from the yoga philosophy, uh, which represents the mind, body, and soul. So at Kosha Foods, we, uh, we commercialize uh, millet grains for anyone that have not heard of millets before. It's an ancient grain. Um, I would say millets are going to be the new quinoa in a few years. It's where quinoa was at a few years ago in terms of its popularity. But these grains are very sustainable to grow and uh, does not need any inputs. And it's very naturally organic to grow. And it's great for consumers' health, uh, great for farmers because it gives them um, uh, better uh, better value because they don't need to spend any money on growing these crops. And it's better for the environment because it's uh, it's got a very low carbon and water footprint. So that's where I currently stand, but I'm happy to uh, dig deeper uh, later on or where, um, where you find it interesting. Sure. So the other um, product that you sell at, at Kosher Foods is sorghum. And so myself, I think I've had, I, I know I've had millet. I don't know mm -hmm. if I've had sorghum, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are familiar with those names, but mm -hmm. what are the actual, uh, what are the actual health benefits and can millet, are, are these products, are they, are you importing them from India or can these be grown in Canada? Right. Right. Good question. Um, so Millet. So uh, when we talk about millets in Canada, I always uh, have found that I need to explain that millet is actually not just one grain. There is different varieties of millets and the two major groups are called major millets and minor millets. So they both have a few different grains under each of those categories or varieties. Uh, there is at least uh, seven uh, major varieties of millets and sorghum is actually a type of major millet and minor millets include the proso millet and there's foxtail millet there's finger millet um, and uh, there's little millet so there there's all these different types of millets that not only look different and uh, cook different and taste different but they also have a different nutritional profile so when you're eating different types of millets, you are actually getting a very diverse nutrient profile from each of these millets, in addition to increasing um, uh, the diversity in your plate and the soil. Um, sorghum uh, is very widely grown in North America, uh, but 
unfortunately, a lot of this, sorry, a lot of it is uh, going into the biofuel space. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, consumed uh, as an edible grain for the most part. There is less than 10% that goes into like human consumption. Um, and some of it go, go into the livestock and uh, biofuels. So millets, proso, uh, when we're talking about the other varieties of millets, proso millet is the most, gom, uh, most commonly grown millet in North America, which is the uh, yellow looking uh, polished grain that you would find in like a natural health food store, for an example. Uh, there are one or two other varieties that are being grown in North America, but currently there is not enough demand for Canadian farmers to explore growing more of these millets. Uh, one other application for uh, millets that are grown in North America is bird food. So if uh, you know if you have a bird at home and uh, if you're buying bird food, read the ingredients. You, you will um, most definitely find millet as an ingredient. But we're going to talk about um, millets and how it's beneficial for consumers. Uh, let me start with highlighting uh, two or three of the uh, top health benefits. One is that it's naturally gluten-free. I know that recently, whether people are allergic to gluten or not, uh, there is this common belief that gluten is the culprit, and uh, most people are trying to avoid gluten in their diets. So millets are naturally gluten-free, and uh, they are uh, low glycemic. They have a low glycemic index, so that means that the uh, the starches process slowly in your body. So one, it curbs your appetite, and two, it does not spike the blood sugar, uh, blood sugar levels. And uh, so it it's a great um great source of carbohydrate for people who have diabetes, for example, uh, because it's uh, also clinically proven to regulate diabetes upon regular consumption. And the millets that I am working with are the varieties that are not grown in North America, particularly finger millet um, and pearl millet, for example. Uh, finger millet has three times the amount of calcium compared to milk. So for someone that's eating that's not eating dairy, uh, they usually lack uh, enough source of calcium in their uh, in their diets so that's a great grain to add and uh, permalid is really rich in iron and fiber so by consuming these different types of millets we're not we're getting naturally available um, minerals and vitamins uh, from these sources of grains even though I'm talking about millets as grains they're called pseudo cereals which means it's technically a seed similar to quinoa um, but it's uh, commonly referred to as an ancient grain. Okay. And how would one go about consuming these? Would they use it sort of like quinoa in terms of making a salad or a bowl, or would they consume it like a, an oatmeal with, with, you know, however people like their oatmeal in the morning, how would they go about eating Right, right. Yes. Um, so it, it is very similar to quinoa or rice or couscous, for example, in terms of how one would cook it. Uh, and it can be consumed in its whole form as a grain or as a flour as well. So as a grain, it can be a great substitute for quinoa or rice or as a as a side. It, it does have a good amount of protein as well. So it does add 
protein to your diet, whether you're eating it as a side or in combination with some vegetables, it could be a standalone meal. Um, and the flour could be uh, used at, used to make porridge uh, for like breakfast porridge, which is very common uh, where I grew up in South India, this finger millet porridge. And uh, actually that porridge is uh, primarily fed to babies when they start uh, weaning, uh, start, start eating um, solid foods as a, as a weaning food because of its high amount of calcium. Um, and the flour could be used in baked goods. It makes excellent uh, banana bread, uh, given that uh, everyone's been on this banana bread train, uh, <laughs> especially during the pandemic, uh, or muffins and pancakes and waffles. Um, the, the finger millet in particular uh, acts, acts really beautifully as a standalone grain without having uh, to mix it with any other flowers or even gums, for example, which is what's used in a lot of uh, gluten-free baked recipes. Okay, that, that's great information to know. So I think this is a good segue to you know what I really wanted to talk to you about was alternative proteins. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of people hear that, the casual shopper, and mm-hmm. you know they, they instantly have a few different ideas that pop into their head, but maybe you can frame what alternative proteins are, why it's important for the North American shopper to understand what these, you know, what they might deem new age plant-based proteins options are. How would you go about describing and sort of framing it for the everyday Canadian? Mm-hmm. Yes. So alternative proteins are just like it sounds an alternative to the traditional protein, which is protein derived from meat and dairy. Um, it could be anywhere. Um, it could be any sort. Uh, it could be sourced from. A few different uh, ingredients. Uh, there is plant-based proteins, for example, soy and pea protein, where uh, which the Beyond Meat burgers are made using. That's one class of alternative proteins. And then there is insects, insect-based protein. And then there is um, cultured um, or cell-based meats, which is still at a very early stage. Um, I don't, I don't think there is enough consumer awareness in that. Uh, in that space quite yet, but there is uh, a significantly growing number of companies uh, produce uh, or researching cell-based meat. Um, adoption uh, curve is going to be uh, interesting to watch, but that's that's coming sooner than we expected. Um, and the the need for alternative proteins emerges uh, or emerged in the last few years uh, due to uh, Three different reasons primarily. One is um, environmental concerns. Um, yes, in one news media or another, we have all heard about how um, meat and uh, dairy production has a significant impact on the greenhouse gas emissions, and that we need to uh, we need to change to a sustainable food production model to be able to feed. Um, feed enough feed the growing population in future so that's that 
is that that's what primarily drove the trend and uh, increased um, awareness about alternative proteins. And number two is health. Um, there was a report that came out a few years ago uh, from the UN citing concerns of uh, cancer over uh, red meat consumption and uh, heart diseases. So that really uh, had consumers um, pay more attention to these alternative protein sources. And uh, the third one is the animal welfare, which, uh, which is... Um, driven by vegans um there there is definitely a controversy wherever you bring up that topic but regardless of the um regardless of the issue uh, or the, the cost that's driving the alternative protein movement it, we are definitely going to see this space increase um if anything covid has shown us that uh, uh alternative protein products have uh, increased in sales uh, exponentially. And uh, Beyond Meat IPO last year also uh, showed us that there is a consumer appetite for these products. Um, why is it important for a North American shopper to understand these? Um, I would say in North America, we are one of uh, the highest consumers of uh, protein sources. We, we actually over-consume protein. We consume more protein than recommended compared to uh, developing uh, or emerging markets. Um, so we have a responsibility to uh, take a look at how sustainable it's going to be uh, in our long-term future and uh, adapt whether, uh, whether through healthier options or alternative options and uh, uh, understand more about how beneficial these products are going to be our health and um, and the economy. Well, that, that's a great, great picture uh, painted for the viewers. One thing that I want to look up after this, and you might know, but with the red meat studies that have come out in the past around mm -hmm. how it's impact negatively impacted people's health. I'm curious if they've controlled or what factors they've controlled for, you know, when you lump red meat together, that's kind of a wide net and saying, you know, mm -hmm. there's a difference between somebody eating a, you know, a greasy fast food hamburger and also having a sugary pop with it mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. greasy fries versus somebody now yes. that when you say red meat, they say, well, I'm keto and I have uh, grilled cauliflower and a nice ribeye steak and that's it. Right. They're two very different you know, that if you say red meat, it casts the same, um, in the same net, but they're really actually quite different. So I'm curious, I, I want to do some research myself to look at some of those studies and how they sort of classified, because I feel like it could be some of the downstream, um, effects of what they're eating, um, mm -hmm. and sort of associated parts of the meal. Absolutely. I uh, I need to actually go back and see what how they. Uh, I do remember reading about it, but I can't remember. Um, uh, I blame my poor memory. But uh, <laughs> uh, that it is an interesting uh, interesting point that you have brought up, and it also reminds me that when we are talking about alternative proteins, not all alternative proteins are created equal. Uh, I remember in one of the conferences last year, uh, someone was uh, talking about this very same topic. And, uh, you know, with Beyond Meat Burger, as, as amazing as it tastes and cooks and smells, we're still, we still need to remember that we're actually comparing a burger. 
uh, a burger where where we have not set our standards too high in terms of uh, how uh, how healthy a burger is. A burger is not just meat, and it does have other ingredients, and um, cl- that's why. So, clean label is a is a term that we commonly use in the industry to to talk about how. Um, how good are the ingredients that go into developing these products? So it, it varies hugely between different brands. So uh, that is definitely uh, an, an area uh, consumers do find it challenging to understand. And there is also this notion that if you can't, uh, you know, if you can't spell it and if your grandmother didn't use it, it's not an ingredient you want in your food. Um, as a scientist, I would question that because uh, there are some ingredients we do use and uh, they do not necessarily cause any harm and uh, they may not be too simple to spell for an average consumer, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad ingredient. Um, Impossible Burgers Heme, for example, it's a completely new ingredient, but um, it is created uh, using uh, fermentation techniques to give meat its unique flavor. Um, but just because we have not used it in the past does not make it a necessarily an unwanted ingredient in food. Um, in North America and Europe and most, most uh, geographies, there are regulations that um, food uh, producers need to adhere to before they introduce an ingredient or a product in the market. So the regulations do uh, do emphasize that we make sure that it is safe. Um, I don't know if I got an off topic there, but uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, you did actually. Yeah. And, it, and it's a great segue. I was going to ask you this later, but it, it's a question I like to ask um, almost every guest. And it's, what is something that consumers don't necessarily fully comprehend about health labels that are thrown around. And I'll give you two examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm curious what, so uh, this, this past week we had Rindy Bristol from star produce, who's the company behind inspired greens, the largest greenhouse uh, greens operation in Canada. And they're mm-hmm. not able to, I'm paraphrasing, but they're not able to deem their, their greenhouse greens organic because mm-hmm. they're not growing in, dirt they're growing hydroponically Mm. so they call them greenhouse clean Um, Mm. but if you call your you know your greens organic you can get a nice price bump Mm -hmm. or in the case of you know if somebody is trying to be vegan and they're trying to you know create some lifestyle changes they automatically assume that if something you know is considered vegan it's healthier but then if they go and get some blood work done they might realize that they're actually quite deficient because they've removed vast food groups from their diet. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with any of the labels or the the diets. Um, but I think there's, you know, there needs to be the education and awareness around what ingredients you're swapping in and out. And are there going to be gaps? You know, what you said about, you know, folks that are going um, dairy-free mm-hmm. and millet that has three times the amount of calcium. I mean, that that's fascinating to me. I would have never thought you could get calcium from, mm-hmm. you know, um, grain, a grain right? or a cereal, as you said. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's, if, if there's any examples that you see that are obvious, you know, um, in, in the market. 
Uh, yeah. So one uh, while we are on on the page of labels and ingredients, one example that I commonly use when I'm actually talking to my friends is that a comparison of uh, full fat yogurt versus a low fat yogurt. Uh, we want to reduce fat. Uh, we want to consume, uh, you know, um, I don't know, fat is the enemy anymore because now all of a sudden fats have become like a star <laughs> in uh, in certain diets. Uh, but it, just talking generally for for a minute, um, if you um, if you compare full fat yogurt ingredients versus low fat yogurt ingredients you will find that if you when you are taking uh the fat out you do have to replace it with something else to compensate for the the texture and the mouthfeel you would get from a full fat yogurt so there are ingredients that are used for example xanthan gum or carrageenan which is actually used quite commonly in creams to give it the viscosity um and uh, are are those so at what expense does a consumer want to limit their fat or sugar intake and when we're talking about sugar for example it will be stevia or stevia is fairly new and uh, it's probably the best natural uh, sugar alternative and there is sucralose sucralose has been shown to have negative health effects in clinical trials and studies so if you're going for a diet coke or a diet pepsi um what what is it that you're sacrificing i understand that as a scientist it, it it's easy for me to read the labels and understand these things but i don't think uh the the uh, public health guides do a good enough job in explaining consumers about uh, these different ingredients and its health benefits, or even like how can one read these labels and understand them better. Um, and I uh, the, on the same uh, on the same at the same time, I also see these Instagram influencers giving ingredient advice with absolutely no knowledge in the uh, in the field or experience or any science background to back their claims. So unfortunately, I see people following their advice and avoiding certain products, and that's not necessarily the right path either. Uh, definitely do some research, uh, but only go to reliable sources for information uh, that's either put out by organizations uh, that, um, that do not profit from any of these uh, either uh, influencer, so-called influencers, or um, or a certain brand, for example, it is a complex topic, and you know the 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 claims are also increasing by the day. I mean, we never had plant based, we never had um, uh, even you know uh, allergies being listed in the front, and uh, uh, grams of protein is as a new thing. So the, the the packages are getting busier and busier in terms of how they look. So I definitely empathize as a consumer, how hard it is for one to understand these. But I think a first good step is to actually read the ingredients um, more than you want to read the claims. Reading, I would place reading the ingredients as a priority over seeing whether it has heart healthy symbol on it or whether it has high protein on it. 
Um, and even better if you do have the time and you're grocery shopping, uh, which is my most favorite thing to do with my daughter. When we go grocery shopping, I would put two boxes side by side of the same product, different brands, and ask her to compare the difference between the two labels. Um, so um, there you go, Mike. <laughs> Does that? I like that. <laughs> no, no that, that's a good uh uh, good thing to keep in mind for for anybody, and and I think I, I asked this question to a past guest, Robin O'Brien, on the show mm-hmm. about you know you look at the CPG companies, the large ones, and you know these are multinational, billion dollar plus companies, mm-hmm. and is it their role to educate consumers on food or is it to make a profit? And the reality is right, right. now, the and the base, their investor base, it's to make a profit. And so you know you, right. if you go on the back and to your point earlier of how many of those ingredients can you pronounce or do you understand what they actually are? And if there's too many that you can't, mm-hmm. it's not that they're inherently bad, but if you're look, looking for just a simple way to start eating healthier, you mm-hmm. know, is it a matter of, do I understand what this is? Yes. And, and, and if you do, then, you know, eat it and, and eat it mm-hmm. without guilt. And, mm-hmm. and not to say that the other way is, but that, that's a great way. And, and especially educating people while they're young, because, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone has as much time as you and I to understand food. I mean, we're employed in the food industry, but, mm-hmm. you know, other people, you know, they, they're spending their days doing other things. So it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to find that unbiased educational mm-hmm. source. So mm-hmm. just but, to, um, yeah, go ahead. Touch on, yeah, what you mentioned, whether uh, I think that's a really good argument. Who, who, where does the onus lie? in educating the consumers versus, you know, making the profit? Should the companies do more to educate consumers uh, to help them understand what's healthier? And do they have the responsibility to produce products that are healthier? I would say uh, yes, but not it's not 100% on the company either. So when, if we're going to place all our, resp- like, you know, all our um, expectations on the company to produce only the best uh, tasting, healthiest food products for us, like when are we going to take responsibility for ourselves? You know, we want to indulge. At the same time, we want the companies to create the healthiest products for us. I feel like that's a bit too much to ask. Um, and I speak that, as, you know, from a personal, uh, personal experience as a consumer and also as an industry professional. If there is no demand for candies, which is 100% sugar, if you stop buying candies, the company is not going to keep producing candies. If when there is a demand, the company is going to cater to that demand because ultimately they have to make money to be able to stay in the game. So when consumer uh, behavior changes, the company is going to adapt. So they're going to provide more, uh, more or create more products based on the the, the habits and the changes in consumer behavior. So we also need to take a personal responsibility to demand that through our consumption patterns. Definitely. And maybe this is the last point I'll make on this, but it's interesting. I remember a couple of years ago, I I went to my family doctor and they were talking about diet and uh, she was, you know, sort of from a, she was a a, uh, nutritionist and, Mm -hmm. you know, certified and everything. And but she was, you know, telling me about the Canada food guide and what I needed to follow. And I think at the time it was, don't quote me, but you know, six or eight servings of grains and that I needed to eat cereal. And, 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 
it, now that I'm more educated on food, it's just, it's interesting because you realize, you know, cereal is a product of these large multinationals that have spent millions and millions of dollars on food lobbying mm-hmm. to get the governments to have. And, and we mm-hmm. saw even just recently what happened to um, the dairy community felt left mm-hmm. out when the Canada food guide changed yes. and how much corporate influencing dollars go mm-hmm. into the food guide. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was, it was, it was interesting to me because, you know, growing up, I ate cereal all the time. That was just a normal thing to do in the nineties. But mm-hmm. now, you know, mm-hmm. you look at this profile of cereals and they're, you know, fairly like empty carbs that, you know, raise yeah. your, <laughs> their glycemic index is high. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, you know, added sweeteners and sugars and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of interesting that coming from a nutritionist, and I'm not saying it was mm-hmm. wrong. It's mm-hmm. just, it, w- it was interesting. The more that I've gotten to know about food, mm-hmm. this sort of really traditional rooted, well, this is what the Canada food guide says. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily to say that the Canada Food Guide is a, you know, it's kind of a one size fits all, but it, it doesn't necessarily cater to everyone's needs. Yeah, no, yeah, no absolutely. And uh, I remember uh, as, a, as a teenager, I believe, in India, uh, grabbing my first box of uh, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes that I thought it tasted amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the cereal aisle, unfortunately, hasn't changed much in a few decades. Um, and also, it, it seems to be like a fairly slowing uh, segment as well in terms of category growth because uh, lately more and more people are switching to cereal bars, which is again, um, they're when we're gonna, I feel like we could just have this conversation about ingredients for the next few hours. Uh, cereal bar is also uh, another category where there is so much uh, sugars or sources of sugar uh, hidden as a sweetener uh, in in the ingredients and the package that we need to be aware of. But again, going back to what I said earlier, we definitely need to start reading ingredients if we're not already. Definitely. One cool thing on the, on the cereal porn is there are some interesting CPG brands out of the U S magic spoon is one of them that's doing a low carb keto cereal. Uh, I haven't tasted any of these, but I'm really excited to try them. So um, I think we've exhausted that topic uh, sufficiently, but it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's, let's switch gears a little bit to um, a macro level. So you have a leadership role with a organization called Thought for Food, mm-hmm. which is the mission is listed as the world's next gen innovation engine for food and agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess talking about how to sustainably feed 10 billion people mm-hmm. on the planet, what are, I know this is a very complex question, but just sort of mm-hmm. on a high level, what are the biggest factors on a macro or micro level to feed this many people in a sustainable way possible? And then also this sort of the second part of that question is, is this a good resource? Um, I, I believe you're also part of the protein directory. Mm-hmm. And is that that's a, um, a community of entrepreneurs and, and, and whatnot that are going after the plant-based protein space. Is that a good resource for Canadian food entrepreneurs to look mm-hmm. into? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me touch on Thought for Food. Um, thought, yes, uh, as you mentioned, at Thought for Food, we call ourselves the world's uh, world's next gen innovation engine, meaning that um, it is it is on us, uh, the younger generation or the current generation, because we're going to be the leaders of tomorrow, or we're going to live in the future uh, and have the power to shape that world and um, make it better. And how are we going? So, you know, the big question 
the the million dollar question is how can we sustainably feed 10 billion people by 2030 this is a question that uh, a lot of us in the food industry are uh, working towards in many number of ways whether it's working on solutions at a um at a company level startup level or a corporate company level or as a startup or uh, as someone working in uh, uh, shaping policy changes, uh, there is there is different different elements that is uh, going into answering this question. Um, and obviously, when we're asking this question uh, globally, there are different um, I guess different ways of answering this question based on the location uh, or the geography as well. Uh, what works in North America may not work in necessarily in Asia. And um, what works in South America is going to be very different to um, uh, India or Africa, for example. So uh, at, a, at a macro level, I think we need to consider food waste. Uh, although the reasons for food waste is very different from uh, a developing country versus uh, North America and Europe. Um, and uh, how can we make uh, food, uh, food production and consumption more circular? So the circular economy of food is also a uh, growing uh, or increasingly uh, or is increasingly gaining momentum. Um, there is uh, initiatives all around the world uh, that are shaping conversations and actions in making food uh, food production and consumption more circular, and um, and then sustainable food production. So all of these are um, uh, are macro topics, and uh, it, it is definitely a very heavy question. Uh, we can talk about this in detail, but what Thought for Food does is provide uh, millennials and the younger generation the tools that they need to uh, to come up with solutions to solve these challenges uh, that uh, that I just talked about uh, addressing whether it's uh, food waste or you know uh, food to be fed in Mars or. Uh, how can we uh, grow uh, rice more sustainably? So whatever uh, the problem is that one wants to solve, uh, uh, TFF or Thought for Food is a place to not only find a community of like-minded people, but also a network of uh, mentors to help these people uh, provide access to support and resources, whatever it is that they need. And uh, we also have what is called a digital labs platform. Uh, I would say it's uh, very similar to like a uh, incubator or, sorry, or accelerator or an incubator, but it's all online. So it's available for anyone anywhere in the world, regardless of um, uh, what their background is and where they're located, uh, as long as they have an internet connection, they have access to incredible resources and people to help them uh, create startups or improve on their existing uh, ideas and uh, um, the solutions that they're working towards addressing this big question on feeding the world sustainably. And protein directory uh, is somewhat specific to people working in the alternative protein space. 
It is a global community of uh, like-minded people who are all uh, involved in shaping the alternative protein world in one way or another. There is investors, there is uh, uh, cor- uh, people who are in the corporate uh, corporate roles, but interested in the alternative protein uh, category. And there are startup entrepreneurs. So definitely, yeah, it is a great resource for anyone to check it out. And uh, it is currently free to join. Uh, there, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's definitely a, um, a community that's very open-minded in terms of sharing and uh, supporting each other because we're all working towards this common goal, which is producing proteins uh, sustainably. That's great. Um, I have four questions left and I want to be respectful of your time. So the first one is from a policy perspective, Mm -hmm. what do you think Canada should or can be doing to increase our competitiveness and food security in a post-COVID-19 world? Mm, um, That is an interesting question. Um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to, I read a report recently that was put out by the um, School of Public Policy from University of Calgary, which I thought summarized it really well. Um, You know, a lot of people don't realize uh, Canada, we're currently the fifth largest exporter of agricultural goods in the world. Uh, despite our the size of population, we have the capability to uh, to be a leader in um, in 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 producing agricultural goods. And um, just to put that into context, uh, uh, pea protein, for example, um, we are the leader in the world in uh, producing um, producing peas and extracting the protein isolates. So most of the uh, pea protein that's going towards the alternative uh, protein companies like Beyond and Impossible, like are grown in Canada and processed in Canada. But where we're lacking is uh, using using that opportunity. And uh, tapping into that potential to uh, position ourselves as a as a leader in in making us the innovation leader as a country uh, that seems to uh, that seems to be something that's uh, that's really been bothering my mind in the last few years few years ever since I have um, I have been on this entrepreneurial journey. Um, just talking about a post-COVID feeding, you know, um, food in a post-COVID nineteen world. A few a few factors um, that has really uh, been brought to light due to COVID is uh, how our systems are uh, not, I guess, um, are perme- are not um, not suited for immediate changes. Um, we have read about milk being dumped uh, and, um, you know, vegetables being left to rot in the fields uh, because we can quickly adopt to the increase in um, behaviors or uh, behavioral changes from consumers or uh, shift in market trends. So, Financial assistance and relief to farmers is something that has um, has been um, or is being uh, 
is being uh, trans, uh, trans, translated to farmers through organizations like, you know, Farm Credit Canada. And there was even uh, a significant funding boost that was given to uh, Protein Industries Canada to promote, you know, uh, next-gen proteins, which is the alternative proteins. So, yeah, financial assistance for farmers, uh, obviously, uh, very important. And, um Remove, removing some uh, barriers to trading uh, oil seeds and grains and lentils. Uh, that has been something that's been in discussion too. Like obviously it, in, it, it involves a very uh, broader political uh, spectrum of things. Uh, so I, I cannot unfortunately uh, talk more about that. Um, probably I'm not, I'm not an expert to talk about that either, but that's definitely a factor that is going to determine how we're going to come out of, um, uh, come out with a food secure uh, country uh, post pandemic. And uh, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, val- um, value addition to the crops that we produce here um, much more investment needs to happen uh, or much more emphasis also needs to happen in that space. I think just in the last year or two, the Canadian government has been stepping up in um, providing uh, more funding to encourage uh Value, value addition to the, the crops uh, that are grown in Canada, but more investment needs to happen in that space uh, so we can take advantage of those opportunities and also produce more value for the crops that we, uh, that we grow here. So I would, yeah, those, those are my, my three highlights that, uh, that's also like based on some reflection from the, uh, the report that I was mentioning. Okay. Um, no, that's great. Uh, I'm curious. So you spent seven years with a major Canadian dairy company as a product developer. I want to say this was from 2010 to 2017. Mm-hmm. Was the dairy free movement truly on the radar of dairy companies at that time? Or was it kind of always considered a niche thing that would never really blossom? Obviously, you know, just last week, I want to say it was Hopefully, yes. you know, their $200 million sale of a small stake that included Oprah, Jay-Z, garnered a lot of attention. Was it on the radar or was it, you know, was it taken seriously at that time? Right, right. Good question. Um, yeah, so this company that I, uh, this dairy company that I work with, they are globally the second largest dairy company in the world. Uh, yet, even at the, the time that I left uh, the organization in 2017, there was absolutely no conversation about the non-dairy space at all, um, which is somewhat surprising to me now that I'm looking back, um, although I am not sure what's the current status of things. But as, a, as an industry professional who has this corporate experience, am I surprised? No, because uh, large corporations, their focus is to, uh, once they have established their brand, it's to like, you know, just grow at a scale and um, they are not, um, not uh, super, um, I guess, in, have a strong innovation mindset um, like startups do. And obviously that's due to the structure and the organization that, you know, that 
does not encourage the innovation mindset um, from my experience. Um, that being said, they do uh, they do uh, acquire startups that do well at a later stage, and then um, that's you know that's one way for them to stay competitive and uh, um, stay as a uh, position themselves as a leader uh, in their category. But yeah, to answer your question, it is that yeah there 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 were uh, focus on increasing protein and uh, producing lactose free products, but only in in the context of uh, using their existing uh, product line and um, uh, in dairy categories. And, uh, there was absolutely no conversation about uh, going into the non-dairy markets at all. That's that's really interesting, but but not overly surprising just with, with not, big companies. Not and- yes, not surprising. Although I think in the last Two to three years, we have seen Maple Leaf uh, announce themselves as the uh, leader and uh, the, the number one. Their goal is to become the number one protein company on earth. And Cargill, I think, has also uh, revised their mission statement. Uh, these companies are not calling themselves meat companies anymore. They're calling themselves protein companies. So that's been an interesting uh, trend to watch and observe. Um, dairy still, I, I'm, I'm yet. I'm yet to see uh, a dairy company still do that. Although we have seen um, some dairy, com- some large dairy companies in the U.S. Uh, starting to quickly adapt. Um, Elmhurst, for uh, for example. Um, although there has been two bankruptcies just in the last year already uh, from some large dairy players. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's. There's been the two largest dairy companies in the U.S. I want to say have both filed for bankruptcy. So mm-hmm. it's definitely interesting. What you just said, I, I want to just quickly ask you this. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you lie in terms of plant-based products being put in the meat section or dairy-free products being called mm-hmm. milk, let's say? like, Do you think that they should be forced to be a new product category or mm-hmm. it's... it? Is milk specific to like is the origin of the word milk specific to dairy or it's specific to a chemical process or a type of product? Mm-hmm. I know that's a pretty juicy question, but in brief, do you have yes. a thought yeah. on that? No, I like that question. I, uh, I I don't know if I'm biased because I am working in the alternative protein space, but I I believe that you know we're living in a world that's uh, changing by the hour due to the uh, uh, due to new technologies and new processes. So uh, maybe traditionally we used to call milk only if it came from an animal. But with uh, with how quickly the world is changing, um, I don't think if we can if we can create a product that actually does taste like milk and does what milk does, why not call it why not call it a milk and uh, put it in the dairy aisle if it. Uh, looks like meat, tastes like meat, put it in the meat aisle. Uh, that is personally my argument, um, although I'm sure the meat and dairy players would disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I think consumers do uh, consumers do have to know. They, they're obviously going to look at the product and they do understand that they're shopping for an alternative milk when they're picking up an alternative milk product. 
Um, so the labels do say that it comes from either plants or animals. But if, you know, if that's clear, why not put them in the same, uh, same grocery aisle or shelf uh, right next to, to each other? So you give consumers a fair opportunity to choose what they want to choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well said. Uh, last two questions. So mm-hmm. we're starting to see a major push towards diversity and more inclusive hiring practices. Uh, to get more women and minorities on boards, senior leadership positions. You've obviously been very successful rising to leadership positions within companies and also in an entrepreneurial realm and going out on your own. What advice or insight might you give to you know someone in their in their twenties that's trying to find their find their stride or even in their thirties or forties mm-hmm. um, to you know look to grow their their career in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> I. I'm just, um, let me, I guess I just want to be like completely open and honest and tell you that it hasn't been easy, especially as a woman of color. Uh, I have definitely faced bias and discouragement uh, when I tried to move up the career ladder within the corporate environment. Um, It was very direct. Um, So it's it's not easy. And I'm glad that uh, there is an increasing push for more uh, diversity um, and um, and and in board and senior leadership positions. So I'm glad to see that. Um, So if I were to give some advice or insight, um, I would say um, find a mentor. Uh, Because oftentimes when you um, when you're trying to do this uh, as an individual there when there is no one else that you can go to for like any uh, support or guidance it can be uh, it can feel like there's just no support so I mean I'm giving this advice right now but I would not have given the same advice 10 years ago because I didn't know at that time so I think looking back that's definitely something I tell uh fresh graduates and uh, even students that reach out to me uh definitely find a mentor um I can't emphasize that enough whether even within the organization, there, if, if you see someone in a senior leadership level that you respect, but do not necessarily have a direct working relationship, but just, just write an email or reach out to them and uh, uh, ask them to have a 15-minute talk with you uh, every so often and just pick on their brain and share with them what are your career ambitions and where do you see yourself and how you can get there. and. Uh, you know, the more, if you can find more people, the better, but at least have one mentor within your professional, um, professional uh, realm of things. And uh, the other one, uh, never, never stop updating your skills. Even if let's say you are an expert in what you do, uh, like I said, they, we live in such a fast paced world and there is always something to learn. Um, and whatever it is that your niche is, and whether it's technical, non-technical, hard skills, soft skill, keep learning something and keep upgrading your skills because it does, not everybody does that. So when you do that, it gives you a competitive advantage over other people. Um, and maybe another last one, uh, this is also, uh, a hard lesson learned for me is to ask 
particularly as women, uh, we uh, we don't ask for what we deserve very easily. So ask for what you want. And if you don't get it, then you have an option to either stay or leave the organization. But uh, feel free to ask. Don't be afraid to um, to fail and learn fast uh, from whatever it is uh, that that you're experiencing. Well said. Well said. Last question, Sujala. What is your favorite thing to eat or do to reconnect with food? Oh, uh, <laughs> favorite thing to eat. Um, I don't know. I'm such a foodie. I. I, I have a hard time picking one favorite thing to eat, but I do indulge, uh, for example, on my birthdays or, or on my daughter's birthday, we go for sushi. So I think that's our indulgent food. Um, and uh, I, I think I love cooking with food more than eating food. Um, cooking has, uh, I, I know I, I said I grew up in India, so you would think, I probably am, uh, I have a close association to cooking from a young age, but uh, that's not the case. I only started uh, learning how to cook after I moved, uh, moved to Canada. So it, and I don't know if it's a good thing or not. So that led me to actually go down uh, the, the, uh, the internet rabbit hole to find recipes and try new things. And uh, I, um, I, I enjoy finding new ingredients and trying new recipes. And I don't uh, follow one recipe in particular. I kind of just read five recipes and then I come up with my own. So that's my style of cooking. But uh, yeah, cooking with my daughter, just cooking from scratch and using fresh herbs and smelling herbs and ingredients. That's, uh, that's our, I guess that's our uh, bonding moment as well at home. That, that's great. I, I know I'm going to share what you said about what you do with your daughter. I don't have kids, but my, my sisters and my, my, my parents who take uh, their nieces and nephews to the grocery store, I think that's a great way to mm-hmm. educate kids while they're young uh, yes. because that's when their brains are most malleable. Exactly, so. exactly. And the fun way too is like, so when my daughter says she wants to buy a box of cereal, I would say, okay, you can pick a box as long as the sugar is less than seven grams. So that makes it like a little more gamey for them and fun for them. And you can, you know, have ingredients that you want to eliminate or include uh there are there are ways to make it fun for them so it's uh it's a learning opportunity without telling them that they're actually learning something (laughs) for sure well thank you for coming on food for thoughts you i really appreciate it my pleasure mike thank you